Thanks so much. Hello, hello. It's coming through. It's coming through. Hello. Good morning. Well, I'm having a good morning. I, I love the declarations. I thought Justin's testimony just, you know, you, you just know when he's speaking to his children and speaking to himself. I, I've never had that happen to me, but I, I hear it can be quite profound, you know. So, um, so just brilliant, and to, to hear about Christmas. So I'm, I'm chuffed to bits. Um, so I hope you've had a good week, and uh, you've really met with God and a meeting good with God this morning. I, I've had an okay time. Um, I have to tell you why it's just okay. Uh, last time I spoke, um, some of you may remember, um, I, I mentioned uh, m- mysteries, great mysteries in life that we can't possibly hope to solve. And one of those mysteries was where do all the biros go? And... Um, <laughs> I told you about how I brought 20,000 biros into the church building, so how come I can't find a biro in my office anymore? And since then, uh, bless you, many of you have been sending me photos of where my biros are now. (laughs) This this is one of the photos. Uh, Somebody in the church has chosen to make a slide for their hamster. out of my biros, and then I've received a second photo. This is a photo of one of my biros on a beach in Malawi, <laughs> where somebody chose to take it there and I think leave, leave it there. So I think the only reasonable thing for me to do is to travel to Malawi and this rather nice beach in order to collect it. So uh, we'll be taking up an offering for that later on. So, um, so this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at a passage all about godly behavior, and clearly, some of you really need to pay attention. So uh, if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Colossians chapter 3? Um, Paul's writing from a prison cell, which is where some of you are going to end up if you keep nicking biros. Um, and uh, we're going to read from verse 3. And he's writing to the church in Coloss, okay? I've got it on the screen if you haven't got a Bible with you. And it, it goes like this. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of, after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaints against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Wow, what an amazing passage. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you might impart truth and wisdom into our hearts this morning. There's far too much in this passage for us ever to mine today. But Father, we pray what you've got for us would come right through, that you'd speak to us loud and clear. Thank you that every time we read your word, you've got something to say. I wonder what you've got to say to each one of us this morning. Would we be attentive to your voice, we pray today. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay, well, 
This is an incredibly rich passage, as you can tell, and what I want to do is very simply this morning make some observations about the passage and then very quickly look at how it applies to us. Is that okay? So it's a very straightforward, old-fashioned Bible study, okay? So some observations for us. Well, the first thing is this, is that there's a problem that Paul's addressing that's affecting the whole church. That's, that's why he's writing the letter. You've got to have some sympathy for Paul. Um, he spends most of his time sorting out problems that exist in one or other of the churches that he oversees. Occasionally, he gets to write a thank you letter like he does to the Philippians, but most of the time he's sorting out an issue. And he's writing to the church in Coloss because they're facing an infection, if you like, that has got inside the body of the church. They've got hold of some dodgy teaching, which is saying you need Jesus plus something else in order to be acceptable to God. I don't know if you've ever had an infection in your bloodstream that your body's trying to fight off. Um, a few weeks ago now, uh, I was at the end of the garden and accidentally dropped a brick on my big toe. And uh, it was pretty painful. And what happens is the blood vessels, sorry if you've just had breakfast, but what happens is the blood vessels underneath the toenail ruptured. And so there was a lot of pressure coming up from underneath. I was in a lot of pain, but as you can imagine, I was very brave about it. But it reached the point where the pressure was so much it needed to be alleviated, it needed to be relieved somehow. And uh, so I, I had um, two choices then, really. Um, one is I could go to A&E, or, or two, I could look on YouTube and see what they do. Um, <laughs> so you know, you know which way I went, didn't you? Um, well, I thought, you know, the NHS, under a lot of pressure financially, I'll help out. <laughs> so I looked on YouTube, and apparently what you do is you heat up a red-hot needle... Yeah, is this helping you? And you, you put it through the toenail. I, I tried this, heated it right up real hot, but the trouble was pushing it through just made the pain so much worse. So I thought, I thought to myself, what I need to do is I need to alleviate the pressure, put a hole in it, but not by pushing something through. Perhaps if I drilled something through it, <laughs> that would help. So I went back to YouTube, and um, there was a guy there who'd done this. And, and I thought to myself, well, last... Last birthday, my, my family clubbed together and bought me a cordless drill. So the Lord has provided. So I very carefully started to drill through, and I went most of the way through and then went through the last bit uh, with a needle and uh, alleviated all the pressure. I won't go into the details. Uh, Emma was there on hand just in case I passed out partway through and fell on the drill, because that would be bad. Um, so it all seemed to go well until about a week later when it started to get worse again, and uh, I went back to the, to the... went to this time, I thought, what I'll do is I'll see a medical professional, which some say maybe would have been a good idea in the first place. I went to the nurse, and uh, I, I explained to her what I'd done, and then she used some rude words. Um, and <laughs> then we got some antibiotics and dealt with the infection. Two things I learned through this experience. Number one... Watching a YouTube video doesn't really qualify you to do surgery on yourself. And number two, it only takes one area of your body to get infected to make the whole body sick. One part of your body will make the rest of you sick. I felt dreadful. I felt lousy with this. Paul is writing to the church in Colossus because one area, one group within the church have been spreading this poison around the church and it's making everybody sick. One of the lies of our individualistic society is that it's just about you and your life. Paul writes to the church and says, your choices, your decisions, the way you live your life doesn't just affect you, it affects everybody else around you. We've seen that with the offering, haven't we? Your good choices 
to give generously, sometimes above and beyond your means, is going to have influence many, many other people. It works the same way for the negative choices that we make in our lives. It only takes one area to get infected to, to influence everywhere. So the church as a whole is suffering because of this unhelpful teaching that's got in. That's the first observation. The second observation I want to make is that Paul says this. He's saying, what motivates our behavior is really important. It's not just how we behave, it's what motivates our behavior that's really important. As with so many of uh, Paul's epistles, he starts off with a theology describing who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He front loads the letter with who Jesus is. And then, in the second half of the letter, he starts to apply it. This is the, these are the implications of Jesus to you. This is the, the outworking of it, if you like. And in essence, he's front-loaded it with theology about who Jesus is. And now we reach the pivot point in chapter 3 where he's saying this is the implication for you. And he's giving them practical outworkings of being a follower of Jesus. He's saying this is what it means to live like Jesus. Um, We've recently uh, put together this um, booklet, which I hope you find really helpful on discipleship, explaining what it means, in a sense, to live the Christian life. Well, scholars would argue that this is one of the passages in the New Testament where the apostles are putting together a, a package, if you like, a package for discipleship. And one Peter would be another example. In order that people know how to live the Christian life. That's why it's so practical. But before he tells them what to do and how to behave, he wants them to know who they are. Verse 12 is a key reminder that he's going back to. He says this to them, You're chosen by God, holy and dearly loved. He wants to remind them of their identity. You see, the lie that they've been listening to as a church is this. Jesus plus certain behavior makes you acceptable. The truth is, though, Jesus makes us acceptable Therefore, behave in certain ways. And there's the world of difference between those two things. He's saying, now, live out of your new identity. You know, sometimes I think we spend a whole lot of time and energy as Christians trying to become a really good Christian. (laughs) Working really hard to be a good Christian. What's a good Christian response here now? This may shock some of you, but I don't want you to try and be a good Christian anymore. I don't want you to try and be a good Christian anymore. Now, before they cut the feed to the mic, let me explain why. (laughs) The reason why I don't want you to try and be a good Christian anymore is because you already are a good Christian. You have been made righteous. Verse 12 says that you are holy. Don't get more righteous than that. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You look like Jesus to the Father. So now, live that out. Live out who you really are. We live out of our identity, not for our identity. There is the world of difference. You know, um, Edward VIII, um, former king of England, uh, used to say of his father, King George, the way that he would discipline him when he was a little boy, when he was messing about in Buckingham Palace, climbing the curtains or whatever he did, is his father would get him and he would sit him down and he would look at this young prince and look him in the eye and he would say this to him over and over again, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. For if you remember your identity, you'll behave accordingly. George V had realized something. Behavior flows from identity. We don't follow a must-try-harder gospel. But we do follow a live-out-who-you-are gospel. That means you're different now. You are a new creation. 
That means that sin is no longer my natural environment. It's not who I am anymore. It doesn't fit with me. So Paul's saying what motivates your behavior is really, really important. And then the third observation I just want to make for us is this, is that spiritual growth is not just about what we start doing. It's about what we stop doing that counts too, just as much, perhaps even more. Growth is a natural consequence of being in the kingdom of God. So what we've got to do is deal with the growth inhibitors in our lives that stop us being who God intends us to be. This is really good news. Because some of us, if we're honest, we don't need more things to do, do we? Yeah, I I feel that way. I don't need more things to do in my life. The good news is, Paul's saying a whole load of things in this passage where he's saying, I'm giving you less to do. Drop these things in favor of some other things. And and the way he does it is he uses a metaphor, a visual image. Um, We've chosen to use in our discipleship language um, symbols that you commonly find on an iPod or a uh, on a computer, those sorts of things. Paul uses a different picture, but he uses the picture of clothing. And so what he says is this, he says to them, I want you to take off some old clothes and I want you to put on some new clothes. He says that in verse nine and 10. You have put off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. The idea is that there are some clothes that are like filthy old rags that we're wearing that aren't to do with our new life, they're to do with our old life. They smell bad. They don't look good on us anymore. We need to ditch those clothes in favor of something much better, much more befitting who you are. It means that we're drawing out dignity and identity from people when we call them to be like Jesus has been. And so he's saying, take these clothes off and put these new clothes on. So that's some observations from this passage. Well, Let's just try and apply some of this to our lives. What is it Paul's saying to take off and to put on? The first thing is this. Paul says, says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Commentators all agree that these five vices are about putting off sexual immorality. Uh, they're five vices involved in social relationships with one another. It's increasingly unpopular, But the Bible says that all sexual activity outside the safety of biblical marriage damages us and the ones we love. Let me try and explain. Um, Sex is actually a little bit like this. Sex is a little bit like a chainsaw. Um, Now, this is Rob Campbell's chainsaw. Um, Many of you will be relieved after the drill story that I don't actually own a chainsaw. Um, But... um, Chainsaws are a marvelous invention. Now I'm holding this, actually. I must get one myself. Um, They are brilliant invention. They're a wonderful creation. But they're only a wonderful creation inside certain boundaries, inside certain safeguards. Imagine if I started this up right now. I won't, because it probably set off the fire alarm. But imagine if I started up right now. Simon and Wendy on the front row would probably be getting a little bit nervous right now. The sound, the power of it. There's, there's massive potential for good doing something really useful with a chainsaw, but there's also massive potential for harm. Sex is powerful. In the right context, it's wonderful. In the wrong context, it messes up people's lives. You know, the word, world around would say that, well, it's, it's about having fun, it's about enjoyment, it's about expressing yourself. 
But the reality is that's not what I've seen over 15 years in pastoral ministry. You know, from all that I've seen, if I wanted to mess up your life royally, if I really wanted to shipwreck your life, here's what I'd do. I would go for sexual sin in your life if I possibly could. I wouldn't present you with a sudden massive temptation. I'd start off small and wait for your moment of greatest weakness. I'd wait until you're emotionally exhausted or you'd had a round with your partner or you're just feeling blue. And then I'd go for late at night, maybe after you've had a couple of drinks, when the house is quiet and you're just aimlessly surfing the net. Or I'd have you meet someone, perhaps in the workplace, that you're attracted to. Someone who's willing to lend a sympathetic ear or a shoulder to cry on. And then I'd tell you, it's just this one time, so there's no need to tell anyone. And slowly but surely, I would reel you in. I'd make sure that you needed to go further each time in order to get the same buzz that you had before. The law of diminishing returns would work in my favour. And I keep you going with normal life for a while, just to the point where you're leading this double secret life. And maybe get you into leadership, perhaps carrying responsibility. That way, when more people are trusting you, the impact will be felt all the more. And once you are hooked and things have got out of control, then I'll be ready to go public. My honey trap would be complete. The media portrays sexual immorality as a bit of fun and self-expression. But forgive me, I've sat with too many sobbing husbands, distraught wives, and boyfriends racked with shame, too many teenagers who wish they'd never got drunk and done those things. I've listened to too many children devastated by what happened to them and their parents' relationship to ever feel complacent on this issue anymore. Paul spends a lot of time on this verse. He's, he uses five different ways of essentially saying the same thing. Why? Because sexual sin is like stepping on a landmine. You're not just going to blow yourself to bits, but you'll tear shrapnel into everybody else around you. The people with the worst injuries, they're going to be the ones standing closest to you. Paul says, put off all sexual immorality like some torn and disused clothing. Very briefly and practically, here's my three bullet points on how to go about stepping out of this. Number one is this. Accountability starts before anything has happened. Even if you've never looked at anything, even if you've never had an inappropriate conversation with somebody, get some sort of accountability in your life now. It starts before something happens. Sexual sin is like a fungus. It grows in the dark. So bring everything in your life to the light. Good piece of advice. Sometimes, I love being a Brit and coming from Britain, but sometimes we don't always say exactly what we mean. Find someone who's going to talk straight to you. My personal tip is God has blessed us with many South Africans in this church. <laughs> Find a South African to keep you accountable on sexual sin. They are not burdened by a lack of clarity. If you can... Find someone who's Afrikaans. Yeah? It'll be like, right, let's have a little chat. You and me. Let's sit down, we're gonna talk. Yeah, and, and you will never sin again. You will probably never go on the internet, you might join a monastery. But the point is, you will end up free. Find somebody who's gonna talk straight to you in order that you might find freedom. 
The second thing is this. Best thing I've ever done is uh, I remember there have been a few occasions where I've been on the internet, perhaps researching something late at night, and I've just felt that tug of, oh, I wonder. Oh, I wonder if I keyed that in, what would happen there? And so what I've done is I've sent an email or a text to one of my friends, and it's gone like this. Can you ask me tomorrow if I looked at anything tonight? And I've sent that out. And do you know what? Ping, off goes the email, and so does the temptation at the same time. <laughs> if you want to get free, get some help before you get tempted, not after. It will make your life so much easier. And thirdly, this piece of advice is this. Don't take what God isn't giving. Ask yourself, is God giving me this relationship, this opportunity, this website, this person in my life? Because if God isn't giving it, you don't want it. The second thing is this, just very briefly for the sake of time, is Paul addresses the issue of gossip. That's what he's talking about, malice and slander. Proverbs 16, 28 says this, A dishonest man spreads strife, a whisperer separates close friends. I just want to make the point that gossip exists in this church because we entertain it. For many of us, our sin is not gossiping, it's listening to gossip, and it's time to draw a line. It, turn it around on its head. Somebody wants to talk about somebody else, Say, why don't we pray for that person? Or, I'll come with you when you go and talk to them. Kill it dead. Use a fire extinguisher on gossip wherever you see it. All right? Okay, and then lastly, very briefly, Paul says what we're to put on, these new clothes that we're to put on. I just want to pick out one. He, he says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has complaint against one another, forgiving each other. Loads in that small, dense passage. But if you were trying to find one word that summarizes all of those things, the way that we're to interact with one another, what we're to put on, you wouldn't go far wrong by saying Paul's talking about being patient with one another. And in an impatient world, this is so hard for us. For many of us, three-minute microwave meals seem like an eternity. We, you know, we want to cross the road, so we keep pressing that button until the green man appears. But Paul's saying, I want you to be a people of patience. Let me ask you, if patience is a fruit of the Spirit, are you growing in patience or shrinking? Is it a fruit that's growing in your life? Or is busyness just crowding it out? Patience is mentioned 11 times in different New Testament letters. So 11 letters have got it. 1 Thessalonians 5 is a brilliant example. It says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There are, in other words, Paul's saying there are many different situations. Some you'll need to encourage, others you need to help, others you'll need to admonish, but every time you need to be patient. Patience is for all of them. It makes sense, doesn't it? I'm so grateful for the times when people have chosen to be patient to me. I just wouldn't be here if people hadn't demonstrated patience to me. I, I remember the first time that I preached, um, I was absolutely scared stiff. And I've been given, ironically, uh, Joshua chapter 1 on courage. And um, I stood up, delivered this preach, and it, we, we met in an evening in a school hall. There were bright sort of stage lights that sort of shone down that, in effect, created a pool of light and a platform. And uh, I gave my terrible, well, faltering preach that I didn't think was very good. And I was so embarrassed and so uncomfortable with the whole process that I handed over at the end to the person that was hosting. It was a guy called Dave Stroud who was leading the church. And the idea was that he would then come and get people to be prayed for and all that sort of thing. So I handed the microphone back over to Dave Stroud. And then I walked off to the left and out of the pool of light. And I just kept on walking. I walked out of the foyer, um, out of the, the building we were meeting, off the grounds, and just went off. Nine o'clock at night. 
the preacher's just gone AWOL. I just went missing. I had no, no mobile phones at that stage, nothing like that. And I just wandered around the town centre, Bedford Town Centre, saying to myself, I wonder which church I can go to now. Will I be welcome <laughs> anywhere because of the disaster that I've just unleashed on the church, the heresy that I've peddled to this church? I just beat myself up and listened to all kinds of lies. And then finally, it was about half 11 at night, I trudged my way home back to this house that I was sharing with a bunch of guys and opened the front door and went in and uh, there sat by the kitchen table was a guy called Martin White who's a leader in the church at that time, shared a house with him and he sat there and if I remember rightly um, he had a, a bottle of sherry on the table waiting, we were sophisticated guys back then and he poured me a glass of sherry and he sat me down and he listened to me and was patient with me and finally sometime way after midnight we both went to bed. I'm here today because people have been patient with me. Patience is powerful. Beth Moore puts it like this. The world breeds impatience. The most difficult people are sandpaper. We need to be completed, mature. This is God's finishing work for us. Convenience doesn't produce character. Are you growing in patience or growing in impatience? Impatience is so often a sign of control. When people fail to follow our agenda, we get impatient with them. So often I can be impatient with my kids. Say, for instance, we're going out to somebody's house for dinner. I'll be impatient with them because I want to be there on time. It's usually because I'm more concerned about how it looks if we're late, how it reflects on me, rather than about how I want to raise my children and want to instill in them the value of honour through timekeeping. We might make it to the person's house, but at what price? Impatience often comes from a place of anxiety. Patience comes from a place of peace. I remember recently we were doing some work on our house and um, uh, one of my children offered to help me with the painting. And um, uh, I said yes, I thought it would be a great father-son moment. And, uh, Within about five minutes, I, I was struggling with the decision because he'd, he'd, he'd managed to drop the paintbrush in the paint, so I'm fishing around inside the paint to pull it out. There was, I don't know how he managed it, there were lumps of paint on the wall. Well, you know, not even just smeary, lumps of paint on the wall, and there was a considerable amount of paint on him. And I had to ask myself in that moment, what's more important here? Is it having a really nice finish to the wall or teaching my son how to paint? To be honest, it's a close-run thing in my mind. <laughs> but I know in my head the right answer is teaching the child. The hurry sickness of our world draws us into getting things done quickly. But at the end of the day, what do you actually want? Do you want immediacy or do you want legacy? Do you want things done now or do you want to pass something on to the next generation? Think for a minute, how patient has God been with you? How patient does he continue to be with you? All I'm saying is give away what you have received. Jesus tells the story of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, where a servant is owed a, is, owes a great debt to his master, and his master forgives him it all, and then he then, in turn, this servant goes out and throttles somebody else for not fulfilling a small debt on their part. In the same way, God in, continues to be incredibly patient to you, be patient with others. God's not in a rush with you. Ultimately, God is interested in your growth, not your performance. It's time to give away what we receive.
Many of us here are going to be in positions of leadership and influence. Demonstrate patience in the workplace. It will stand out like a light on a hill. But others of us here, we're raising children. Do all you can to become a patient parent. Learn from others. Uh, that's why the iParent that many of you will know about, that Melanie runs, be a great environment to just go and learn from others. How can I be a better parent? Discuss with others. Share your stuff in order that we might leave a legacy rather than be concerned with just the immediacy of the moment. Loving others, serving others, changing this town will require a patient investment in other people. Let's be leaders who invest in the next generation, that we might leave a glorious legacy to this town.